Greetings, everyone, and welcome to our podcast series on legal issues in the post-COVID world. My name is Gil Porter, a partner at Haynes & Boone and host of our ongoing series of podcasts covering the post-COVID legal landscape. Today is November 19. With the COVID pandemic making itself even more pronounced in the last month, we're all looking at a lengthened period of remote business or for those less fortunate, limited to no business. Today's podcast takes a look at the financial pressures of the pandemic on businesses from two perspectives, asset-based lending and bankruptcy. We are joined today by two of my law firm partners, Tim Johnston, a Dallas-based partner in our finance practice, and Rich Kanowitz, a New York-based partner in our restructuring practice group. As always, our podcast discussion will be guided by Nathan Koppel, our head of media relations. I will turn this over to Nathan in a moment, but first, our disclaimer. This podcast is for informational purposes only, is not intended to be legal advice, and does not establish an attorney-client relationship. Moreover, by their very nature, the topics we discuss in these podcasts will be fast-moving and subject to change. Legal advice of any nature should be sought from your legal counsel. That's it for me. I'll chat with you at the end. But in the meantime, Nathan, I'm turning it over to you. Gil, thank you very much. Appreciate it. Uh, Tim, I'm going to start with you. I know that you and others at the firm have tracked the impact that COVID-19 has had on asset-based lending. As as a starting point, can you please offer a quick primer on asset-based lending? Sure. Happy to do so. Asset-based lending, we refer to as ABL, is a more structured form of lending product where the lender monitors the amount available to be borrowed under credit facility against a collateral pool known as a borrowing base. The most common types of assets that are included in the borrowing base are current assets like accounts receivable and inventory, but some ABL lenders may also be willing to include fixed assets like equipment or real estate. So they take this pool of assets, and then they use that to monitor the amount of credit available. The borrowing base is typically determined monthly and is comprised of eligible assets multiplied by an advance rate. So what are the eligible assets? The eligible assets are the types of assets that they've agreed to keep in the borrowing base, in our example, accounts and inventory, multiplied by a formula advance rate. So let's say 70 to 85% advance rate on the eligible accounts in inventory. That moves as the company's current assets go up and down every month and they report it, um, but often provides uh, a more liquidity to the company that may be available in other types of products. Uh, does asset-based lending, is it uh, common in different industries or is it concentrated in certain sectors? Sure, that, that's a good question. So in, in order to be a good candidate for an asset-based loan, you really need to have the types of assets that um, are eligible to be included in the borrowing base. And again, that's most commonly accounts receivable in inventory. So what, what are the types of companies that fit that profile? Um, the classic model for the ABL-type product would be a distributor or a manufacturer, so someone who has a warehouse uh, full of widgets and sells them and generates receivables is the easiest form to uh, fit into an ABL type product. 
but look, there's there's plenty of companies out there um, that do deals. Who, you know, they're not their services type companies. Don't have inventory, but the um, the banks will do uh, borrowing based deals just based on their receivables. And has the pandemic led to an uptick in the use of ABL structures? Yes, it has. Um, and, and there's a couple reasons for that. So one is that ABLs tend to be a more counter-cyclical product. Uh, so as the markets get more distressed in general, and industries are more distressed in general, people may experience a pullback from traditional banks and cash flow lending um, available to those companies. And they're much more likely to be able to obtain financing in an ABL or alternative product because, again, it's this more monitored borrowing base of what is the pool of the assets and, and, and an advance rate on those assets with some cushions. So the banks are, or the providers are much more likely to be um, covered from a risk perspective and recover their loan in full if there's a problem. So it, it's a popular product in any kind of downturn or distressed industry. Um, and on top of that, as you have more traditional lending, cash flow lending um, products that struggle in the downturns and their EBITDA or earnings deteriorate, um, it, it can be a good solution for commercial banks who provided that cash flow product to convert that deal or move it into their ABL division and add a barring base to that product. And it help, helps the banks from a risk, risk perspective um, to make sure their money good on the loan and um, can um, help the borrowers continue to receive financing um, during the downturn that may not otherwise have been available to them. And, and do all major commercial banks work in the ABL space or is it limited to certain, certain lenders? No, it's, it's widely available product. Um, all the major money center banks have divisions that provide this product. Um, the, the biggest banks are the typical originators of those deals. Um, a lot, a lot of the larger deals are syndicated and plenty of banks play in those participant roles in those syndicates. And, you know, it, and it really runs all the way up and down the market. If you move down to lower middle market deals, um, there's, a, there's a lot of providers out there. But it's the more kind of super regional banks or the big money center banks um, or even some alternative lenders. So there, there's plenty of depth in the market for whatever whatever size we're talking about. And you touched on this, but uh, but what are – if you could go through the advantages to borrowers of, of – uh, asset-based lending? Sure. Good, good question. So there's a number of advantages and um, reasons that may be good to do an ABL product. And, and honestly, that's why a lot of, uh, a lot of companies have chosen to do it in good times and, and including financial sponsors have viewed it as a good product um, in normal times. You know, what, one is there in our experience, typically priced a little lower than a cash flow deal. And that's because they're considered less risky from the provider standpoint, again, because they're monitoring the collateral pool against a, a borrowing, uh, the loans against a collateral pool borrowing base and feel that their money good. 
and there's a lot of depth to the markets, a lot of competition. Um, the deals can actually be, and this may be somewhat kind of intuitive, but the deals may actually be more flexible in some respects than a cash flow loan. And that's because there's some concepts in these ABLs that are really focused on the company's availability under the borrowing base and having sufficient liquidity and in some of the more negotiated deals, as long as the company is performing on the loan and is above those cushions or trigger levels where they have good availability remaining under the under the revolver, um, ABL lenders can be very flexible, allowing dividends and investments and acquisitions um, for companies to, to that need that flexibility or need to make investments, say, in a complicated foreign structure be able to perhaps push some money down into uh, offshore subsidiaries to finance those activities. So it, 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 particularly in the downturns, one of the major advantages has been, again, as long as the company is performing and has good liquidity, a lot of ABL lenders are willing just not to have a financial covenant. So we call it a spring financial covenant, which wouldn't, have apply unless the company dips below whatever those trigger levels are. Uh, so take the example of being in the cash flow deal where every month or every quarter their bank is testing um, leverage or interest coverage, whatever those financial covenants may be, and the company starts struggling in a more distressed market and is realizing they're probably going to trip those um, trip those financial covenants and face a default, if they can then convert that facility into an ABL facility or find a new provider to take that facility out into an ABL, the company may find itself with, with no financial covenant and able to um, proceed through the downturn without worrying about breaching a leverage ratio. Uh, one of the other good things about the ABLs is they also pair well with other debt instruments. So ABL lenders are, are usually very uh, uh, accustomed to and adept at dealing with um, you know term loans in the structure or liens on other assets for PP&E. We can usually draft around that and, and deal with someone else financing real estate, for example, while the ABL really just focuses on the current assets. Um, and, and it's honestly maybe able to even provide more liquidity than the cash flow deal did. Are there any disadvantages to the structure? It seems like they are they more administratively burdensome than other other kinds of facilities. Yeah, yeah. Well, I'll say qualified. Yes, there are there are some disadvantages. Um, although they're on the whole, I would I think the advantages well outweigh those. There's, there can be some learning curve on the reporting and systems necessary to comply with the borrowing base reporting. So in a normal ABL deal, the company may report the borrowing base on a monthly basis to the lender to calculate um, the underlying aspects of the borrowing base on a monthly basis to calculate what the borrowing base will be for the coming month. And in order to do that, the company needs to have a good grip on what is the AR situation, receivable situation, what is the inventory. Um, and so some companies might find that a bit of a learning curve to get in that rhythm of reporting. Uh, but once 
once they get in that rhythm and don't have to worry about their financial covenants anymore, we find that most borrowers actually prefer it and like it. Um, so there's a little bit more focus on the collateral, again, through that reporting system and making sure the, lend- the ABL lender has a good lean on it. Um, at one point, if you rewind the clock, let's say 15 plus years ago, there seemed to be a bit of a stigma associated with being in an ABL. It signaled to people that perhaps the company was struggling and and that was a lender of last resort, which meant the company was in trouble. And over the last 15 years, that stigma has, has really faded away and shouldn't be a concern to anybody. I think once everyone figured out the benefits of perhaps no financial covenant or lower pricing or flexibility, uh, you know, normal, normal companies tend to like the product and a lot of sponsors love the product for the pricing perspective. Thanks for that. I've got one more, one more question for you about, about this topic. And that is, has the pandemic impacted how ABL financing is documented and structured? It, it has a little bit. Uh, the, the some of that is a more macro um, lending issue rather than specific to ABL. But as with any downturn, you're heading into any downturn. There tends to be a lot more focus on documentation and structure, and just making sure the loans are properly papered and there, there's no inadvertent loose holes. So I, I would say there's some more focus on making sure. It, the deals are properly documented um, in a tighter credit market. Terms tend to tighten up a little bit. Um, they may not be quite as flexible in a, a, a in the middle of a pandemic as uh, in a great bull market. Um, and there are certain things that have happened in the market that have caused concern um, in the lending industry generally. If you follow it, there's a lot of talk about liability management transactions where people have... Um, um, and there's been a fair amount of litigation around it, uh, engaged in, in, in no series of term loan exchanges and note exchanges. And so it's just caused people to take a look back, take a step back and look and make sure their uh, make sure their documentation's in order. But that would span the whole financing landscape. It, it would for the most part, you know, there's a lot of things going on, just hap- just pure happenstance where live war is about to end. And, so there's a lot of new language being pushed out to build in the loan agreements. What is the successor to LIBOR and regulatory changes? So um, it, it feels like there's a lot going on, it, it, but not all of it is 100% ABL specific. Got it. Well, Tim, thanks again. Rich, I'm going to turn to you now to discuss the uh, post-pandemic restructuring landscape. And I'll, I'll start with a question about the volume of bankruptcy filings. Uh, have filings trended up over the last six months? And, and if so, which industries have been the most impacted? Absolutely. Thank, thanks for the question. The industries most affected by COVID are those that are consumer facing, as well as the oil and gas industry. And there's been a huge uptick in both types of industries filing for bankruptcy. We've seen the typical well-known retail brick and mortar stores such as JCPenney or Neiman Marcus filing for bankruptcy um, and moving pretty fast to to get their uh, reorganization plans on file and move through bankruptcy. Likewise, we've seen a lot of filings in the restaurant industry, 
in the movie theater industry and the gyms and health club industry. Again, those industries need uh, persons to walk through and, and spend money at their locations. And because of the various different shutdowns and the closures of businesses and then the slowly reopenings, you know, that cash flow just isn't there, causing a lot of pressure on these companies to get their capital structure in order. And that has forced them to go into bankruptcy. We've also seen a huge uptick in oil and gas companies filing for bankruptcy because COVID has impacted the commodity markets and the price of oil and gas, you know, dropping so significantly that again, because of their capital structure, they just can't afford the debt service. They're being forced into bankruptcy. So uh, the uptick has been actually uh, outstanding, meaning uh, ma- many fold over what was previously seen in 2019. Richard, you've been through a lot of different cycles before. How does this one compare to you know previous down cycles in terms of the surge in filings? Well, this one is just different in the sense that it is a healthcare crisis as opposed to a financial crisis. There's a lot of uncertainty you know, in the industry. The government did its best through various different uh, loan syndications and various different types of support to to keep businesses afloat. But because this is a health uh, crisis and it's continuing, um, companies are just failing. People are just not shopping. People are just not going into stores. They're not buying things. And we are a consumer-driven economy. And that is putting huge pressure on many different types of companies. And they are just filing left and right. Uh, there has been no slowdown whatsoever through 2020 of bankruptcy filings. I, w- I want to get in next to uh, how the pandemic has impacted debtors' approach to restructuring. Uh, let's start with the 363 sales process. How has that uh, evolved in recent months? Sure. The lenders uh, are, are very keen on having these companies go into bankruptcy and come out of bankruptcy as soon as possible. Bankruptcy is a very expensive strategic tool. Liquidity is key. So languishing in bankruptcy and not having uh, everything lined up so that you could have an emergence really is not working these days. Again, there's lack of visibility about where, when your consumer or when your customer is coming back. Um, a lot of these companies have a lot of debt. So we see a lot of pressure from the lender groups on having the company sell itself either to the lender group through a credit bid or alternatively put itself up to auction as soon as possible. Um, we've seen a lot of restructuring support agreements being entered into pre-bankruptcy, having certain milestones for requiring the company to sell itself to the highest or otherwise best bidder early on in the process. So uh, unlike years past where we might have seen a company come into bankruptcy and stay there for a while, market itself for an extensive period of time and go through an auction process and sale. Now we're seeing milestones putting the onus on the company to sell itself very soon. And if there's no other bidders out there to selling itself to the you know senior secured lenders. And when you say soon, is it often within weeks, months of, of a filing? <laughs> well, we've, we've seen it very, very, very quickly. Some, sometimes within 30 days, ordinarily within 60 to 90 days. Uh, the bankruptcy of uh, you know lasting a year is is no longer in vogue. The lenders just will not fund that type of process anymore. Have prepackaged and pre-negotiated arrangements become more common also as, uh, since the pandemic? Oh, absolutely. Again, going back to clarity, visibility, liquidity, uh, lenders are requiring debtors to make their 
choices sooner rather than later. So in a prepack where the plan and disclosure statement has been solicited before bankruptcy, uh, we've seen many of those. And in a couple of them, the bankruptcy lasted 30 days or less. Um, in pre-negotiated bankruptcies, and I touched on this just a little bit in connection with 363, where there's a restructuring support agreement, again, we see a negotiated path to exit of the bankruptcy with certain milestones that the lenders are imposing on the debtors. So these cases are, are much quicker than they used to be because, again, you know, we had otherwise operating businesses that were chugging along paying their debt service, but when COVID hit, there was no revenue. So what you would have is an otherwise operationally well company, but with a huge debt load that cries out to a very quick negotiated bankruptcy process. And that's what we're seeing. I, I know a lot of courts like uh, bankruptcy courts uh, like to hold themselves out as, as good venues for Chapter 11 filings. Where has a lot of this, these recent filings, which which jurisdictions have have gotten most of these these cases? Well, we've seen a lot in the Southern District of Texas, especially in the oil and gas industry. Um, we're seeing a lot of filings in Delaware and, of course, Southern District of New York. We're even seeing an uptick in Eastern District of Virginia in the Richmond area. And the reason for that is uh, the debtor's comfort level with the consistency of the decisions coming out of those courts, uh, knowing that you could reject certain contracts and get out from, uh, you know, burdensome leases is is key for a lot of these bankruptcy processes. So understanding how the judge is going to view certain litigation items is a fundamental decision that goes into where you file bankruptcy. So you, you see a lot of c- companies taking advantage of that consistency in Delaware, Southern District of Texas, Southern District of New York, or the Eastern District of Virginia most recently. Why don't other venues... Uh try to, uh, you know, establish some of the predictability and consistency that, that companies are looking for and, and if possible, arrange their local rules to, to be more receptive to, to debtors and lenders. Um, and I'm just surprised we're not, we don't see more competition for these cases. Well, that, that's a, you hit on something uh, really uh, key. You know, what, what do the local rules say? And secondarily, what do the judges do? You could have great rules, but if the judges are inconsistent or are are not going to provide the debtors with an avenue to exit bankruptcy on a fast track, you know, debtors are going to be reluctant to file. So you need good, complex rules to allow for bankruptcies to unfold quickly and seamlessly. And you need judges who are consistent in their decisions. And I would say many of these jurisdictions, people would say, the judges favor the debtors. They look to the collective good and the process and make sure that, you know, creditors are treated fairly, but that the goal is to have the company with its employees survive. Well, I'm going to ask you finally to, to look ahead to 2021. Do you expect uh, it, it to be more of the same and to continue the surge in restructurings? Absolutely. There's no doubt that this healthcare crisis is not anywhere near over. Um, we're waiting for the vaccine to come into play. That's going to take several more months. Um, with this new administration coming in, it's unclear exactly what their economic proposals are going to be. Um, but you, what you have here, though, is, again, where's the consumer? Where is the customer? Are they spending money? Um, in the middle of this healthcare crisis, without certainty, people are going to be staying home. People are not going to be spending money. Um, that's going to put enormous pressure on those companies that have their capital structure out of whack. 
Um, and you're going to see lenders requiring companies to go into bankruptcy to right-size their capital structure um, and fix that because otherwise you have, uh, you know, no way to be able to service that debt. These companies are um, overloaded with debt and need that bankruptcy process to fix that end of it, as well as to get out from uh, underperforming leases. For example, you know, when you have a shutdown of gyms, what, what, what are those companies going to do? If it's a prolonged shutdown, they're going to have to file bankruptcy. And so I think 2020 is, was, uh, you know, something that is going to continue into 2021 in terms of the magnitude and the numerosity of filing. One more question. I mean, is this, is there a bottleneck issue? Has this led to capacity issues in terms of bankruptcy courts? Are there any delays because of, because of the surge? There's no doubt that the dockets are jam packed and it's very difficult to, you know, get the judges to jump on things right away. But so far, what we've seen is because of the remote uh, abilities of the courts, proceedings are moving forward. Um, now courts are jam packed and they're having remote hearings on, you know, multiple times a day and they're getting through it. Uh, if the process continues, there might have to be some relief in some of these bankruptcy courts bringing in, uh, other, you know, judges to help out. Uh, I've seen that in the past, for example, in Delaware in the past where the district court judges came and assisted the bankruptcy judges in handling various bankruptcies. But so far in 2020, um, the judges and the court system has done just fine remotely. And I anticipate that there won't be any problems in 2021 if things continue the way they have been in 2020. Well, no, no rest for the weary, I'm afraid. Thanks, Rich. I appreciate that. And with that, uh, Gil, I'm going to turn it back to you. Great. Well, thank you, Tim and Rich. And as always, thank you, Nathan. And thank you to our listeners for joining our Covered Podcast series. This topic is explored in a bit more detail in a webinar presented this past Monday by Tim and Rich, alongside our other partners, Neil Kaminsky and Fraser Murphy. You can find this 60-minute presentation, along with some pretty useful written materials, on our website. Uh, and while you're looking at it, take a look at some of our other remaining webinars for 2020 and perhaps some of our over 200 uh, timely client alerts. I also want to take a quick moment to remind you of some other programming birthed from our COVID programs. One, we have our China Updates page which is tracking developments in U.S.-China relations and legislation in China. So very interesting stuff there. HB Media Minute is a new podcast focusing on legal developments and trends impacting the media and entertainment industry, intellectual property, and open government First Amendment law. We're continuing and actually concluding our, uh, our employment law webinar series, a four-part series of great interest and clearly topical. And we have an upcoming Texas Insurance Academy. Please check these all out on our website, hanesboon.com. That's H-A-Y-N-E-S-B-O-O-N-E. This is our next to last podcast of 2020. We'll be speaking with you once more this year in December after the Thanksgiving holiday. Thanksgiving is traditionally a time to reflect, even in a difficult year such as this, that we still have much to be thankful for. We hope you have a happy and safe holiday with your friends and family, perhaps remotely, and look forward to visiting with you in December. 